Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Indecision 2020, a national political election that took way too long to tally and way too long to give us a definitive result. I think anyone who's listened to Inappropriate Conversations at any length knows that this is not going to be a podcast where I make um, unsubstantiated insinuations about the uh, the accuracy and the validity of the election results and whether Joe Biden deserves to be the president of the United States. That is not the direction that I'm going in at all. I'm taking this in perhaps quite the opposite direction by calling BS on nonsense and looking to both sides of the aisle as inappropriate conversations is want to do, and offer criticisms in equal direction and equal measure. I know here lately, especially during the years of the Trump presidency, I probably come off as a very uh, staunch liberal. I still do not believe this is true. When I take uh, tests related to issues, that's probably the quadrant that I fall in, but the reality is I do not believe that my worldview has changed significantly over the last few decades, at least not on the political side. And my worldview has always been pretty moderate, radical moderate, in that from one issue to the next, you might find me on a uh, conservative or a neoconservative or a neoliberal side of the equation. Uh, it's just that because the country has drifted in such a bizarrely odd polarized direction, uh, it seems to have shifted the central axis, where 0.0 doesn't mean now what it used to mean then. I guess what I ultimately mean by being a radical moderate is that I'm likely to offer words of criticism to both sides of the political spectrum, more sides if there's more sides to be had. I'm not likely, when it comes to politics, to be a true believer about much of anything. Now, the other podcast that's on this feed, Walk the Earth, certainly shares a lot of my questions related to religion, but I think those questions on the religion side of the front do come from somebody who qualifies as a true believer. Not so when it comes to politics. So, for example, how in the world, in the wake of a Biden presidency, removing Trump from office when I consider Donald Trump to be probably a criminal, um, certainly unfit to be president, how could that be a bad thing where I might look to parts of America that supported Biden, or at least did not support Trump, and offer words of criticism. I think these words of criticism will resonate. I think they're probably uh, critical thoughts that a lot of people far more left-leaning than me have already thought to themselves, uh, maybe going all the way back to November 3rd or 4th, probably even before that. This election, for the good of the Republic, needed to be an absolute unmitigated landslide. The margin in percentage, needed to be not like 51-52% to 48-49%. It needed to be like 60-40. We needed to be talking about, you know, a, a margin of victory, at least from the popular vote, that would be as large or larger than anything Ronald Reagan ever accomplished. It needed to be an absolute, unbridled repudiation of many of the things, if not most, maybe not even all of the things, that Trump has done and even stood for, over the course of, call it, the last five years. On the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, it's, uh, it's out there listed as a cause, um, I've done something over the last 26 days, give or take. Uh, I actually constructed it as a 25-day process, beginning on the day after Christmas and ending the day before Joe Biden's inauguration. I'm recording this, by the way, on the day of the inauguration, because I felt like any time I might turn on the microphone and attempt to record, something else was going to happen. I had every intent of doing a recording of an Indecision 2020 podcast on January 6th of this year. When everything was finally once and for all settled, when it was in the hands of Congress, they performed their ceremonial duty, and we could stop arguing about whether or not the right electors cast their votes and all that other sort of nonsense, because... That evening would have been, for me, a sense of relative calm, a chance to exhale completely 
in some ways for the first time in more than four years. Well, we all know what happened on January 6th. So in light of that problem, I've simply been biding the days, waiting, 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 seeing if there was going to be an opportunity for me to make a recording because this, the who's president of the United States has been completely settled since mid-December. And frankly, we've known the answer since the beginning of the second week of November. There wasn't any uh, tension or suspense related to who is going to be president. The tension and the baseline stress levels were coming just from whether or not people were capable of accepting facts instead of what this outgoing administration was always calling alternative facts or fake news. We'll get to some of that in a minute, because that is part of the indecision. But I've spent like you know 25 consecutive days on inappropriate conversations, posting past episodes recorded during this window of time between, say, the political convention season in 2016 leading up to the, pres- the presidential elections that year, and all the way until just a few months ago, kind of stating the case, at least for my own comfort and benefit, that I had done things that I could to resist, that I was clearly part of the operation, the opposition, that at no point did I fail to speak up. I had no problem coming up with 25 podcasts, some very direct, some a little bit more indirect, that were nevertheless speaking words of truth into the lies that we've been you know, hearing through, in some cases, what people call the mainstream media, but absolutely through right-wing media and from the President of the United States and from all of his mouthpieces for, well, again, almost as long as I can remember. And so on this day, when it's all said and done, when the President has left and the new President has come in and it feels like we've got even a bead on the process of tracking down the people who were responsible for the insurrectionist violence at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, it feels like we're finally at a spot where you can almost say, okay, but here's my problem. Looking to the left, some of this perhaps could have been avoided if this victory had just been more lopsided, if it had just been more clear, because it is staggering to me that more than 40%, let alone more than 45-46% of the people in this country wanted four more years of the embarrassment that has been the Trump administration. Frankly, as I've said before in introductions to recent talkback episodes, for example, even if you look back at the menu on the feed for inappropriate conversations and walk the earth and see shows that you say, well, I remember that, I've heard that before, I usually do throw a 5, 10, 15, 20-minute intro into those talkbacks, it gives me a chance to, in short form, address somewhat more current events. But my problem with current events is nowhere better stated than this episode, where I haven't recorded it since mid-November when I could have potentially recorded it, because current events shift faster than I want to operate. Therefore, I've been waiting for a moment that's settled and sure, and I don't think that moment happened until January the 20th. This episode could be recorded, very quickly edited and posted, without too much tender loving care given to the occasional misuse of a phrase or mispronounced word, because I feel like it's really important to get it out there. It feels like it's been long overdue, and it's kind of been bottling up some other things I want to do, whether from a talkback perspective or a walk-the-earth perspective, and a lot of that is because of the indecision, but a lot of the indecision is that way too many people seemingly came out in droves to support President Trump and therefore making the, the victory less decisive and forcing the count to be you know, more pins and needles than it needed to be. If the ballots still being managed and counted and processed and eventually recounted in some states were mail-in ballots, and those mail-in ballots were predominantly people who were well, first off, wise enough not to stand in some huge line because they understood the danger of COVID-19 and respected scientific warnings about things like social distancing and mask wearing, but also really passionate about getting rid of the current president, those people were more likely to vote early and vote by mail. And if the early vote and vote by mail tallies weren't going to come in until later, boy, it really would have been nice if on November 3rd, November 4th, 
the margin that Joe Biden had established in almost every state that he was going to win was so large that it was already clearly insurmountable. And it kind of didn't matter if every single outstanding mail-in ballot, ballot absentee ballot, military ballot yet to be counted, if 100% of them went for Trump, it wouldn't matter. Wouldn't that have been nice? But when you think about that lag from call it November 3rd to November 8th, that's only like five or six days when we went from you know, uncertainty on Tuesday morning to finally get an answer on Saturday morning. And when you when you look at it, it's been so many days after that that we've been living with what I would describe as a malevolent lame duck in office. I mean, how many of us, I mean, I, I'm going to cop to it, certainly woke up on a lot of days wondering, is this the day when a completely unnecessary and potentially world-ending nuclear war gets started? by somebody who is just a petulant child striking out at the country because he lost an election. About the time he realized that he wasn't going to win this election, he's lost lawsuit number 495051. On his way up into the 60s, there was no basis to overturn the election. He was done. That's around the time that he stopped caring about whether or not the right amount of doses of the two COVID-19 vaccines were coming in through purchase orders and through the supply chain appropriately. And now apparently with 400,000 dead Americans to a disease that the president of the United States himself called a hoax, even though he had privately said it was going to be a very big deal. Maybe he dropped the ball, maybe even intentionally dropped the ball or negligently because he just didn't care anymore because if those people didn't vote for me, who cares if they get the vaccine? That kind of person was sitting for months in a lame duck position in charge of our country. And the only thing that might have been able to stop it would have been just a staggering, overwhelming victory for Biden. The kind of victory for Biden that might have led Trump actually to just resign in outrage. But because that didn't happen, we ended up getting weeks after weeks after weeks of frivolous lawsuits. Some of those lawsuits, in fact, so frivolous that I kind of hope that if the the bar associations of the various states, if the legal profession lived up to what should be a minimum level of standards, we should be seeing lawyers disbarred. We should be people, people like Attorney General William Barr. There should be serious questions raised about whether he should continue to allow to be a lawyer because his behavior has been suspect at best. And that goes really for the entire Trump, quote unquote, legal team. But if the only criticism I'm offering to people from the left is that there weren't enough, that it could have been more, you've got to stop and say, hang on a second. That's a pretty impressive tally of people you know, participating in the electoral process. 81.2 or more million Americans coming out and voting just for Joe Biden. More than 155.5 million Americans voting for Biden and Trump. And that doesn't even include people who wrote in Mickey Mouse or voted in other sort of um, non-duopoly you know, duopoly kind of ways. So it's a mild criticism at best. Obviously, the bigger criticism belongs over on the right side of the political spectrum. And as much as I try to be moderate and share my criticisms in both directions, if it seems like I'm more harshly scolding one child than the other, then it's probably because that child has done a lot more things really seriously, egregiously wrong. Chief among them is probably fraud. Fraud and misinformation on such a level that it inspired what I'm going to call thousands of U.S. citizens to invade our own United States Capitol, you know, murder a police officer, violently attack and hospitalize other police officers, perhaps causing long-term injuries to some law enforcement folks along the way, in addition to getting four of their own killed in the process, and doing other unspeakable things in terms of theft and vandalism, defecation inside the hallways and offices, smearing human excrement on walls. I mean, this was a horrific event at almost every conceivable level, inspired by the seditious language, the seditious talk, and the irrational lies of more than just the President of the United States, but definitely the sitting at the time President of the United States. I, for this reason, actively support the idea that Trump should be convicted, should be officially, not just quote-unquote removed from office because he's no longer in office, but officially barred from ever running for elective office in the United States of America again. He should be done. And Exhibit A to that might actually be this, that today, despite the fact that there were probably at least 20,000 National Guard troops 
on the ground with boots on the ground in the capital area of Washington, D.C. And another uh, heightened police office police officer presence elsewhere throughout the city of Washington, D.C. And that those people were there, of course, for a reason. Because of the violent acts done in an insurrection on January 6th of this year. But the presence of the National Guard, and I think it would have been effective even if it been a smaller presence, you know, thousands, but maybe not 25,000. The presence of the National Guard, strategically placed to deal with what seemed obviously to be the threat of dangerous harm, did create a peaceful governmental function. Today, January 20th, 2021, the United States government was actually able to inaugurate a brand new president without anybody hitting someone with a flagpole, beating someone with a fire extinguisher. No shots were fired, at least to my knowledge at the time that I'm making this recording. On the whole, comparing January 20th to January 6th in that two-week span, this situation today far more peaceful and what it proves is that law enforcement and even National Guard troops can be used in a way to, quote-unquote, keep the peace quite effectively. This is not a United States capability issue. I reject the notion that, well, it wouldn't have mattered because that mob was going to overtake. I don't think so. I think today we've seen an example of what happens when the person who has sworn an oath to uphold and defend the nation, its constitution, its laws, and its people, is willing to do it. If you're willing to protect the people of the United States, if you're willing to protect our institutions, including Article I institutions, literally the building that holds that functionality, if you're willing to do that, it can absolutely be done. And the fact that the failure was so clear and so egregious, and frankly still worse than we know, the fact that it was such a phenomenal failure due to either negligence or direct malfeasance, yeah, you know, when the governor of Baltimore, uh, the governor of Maryland, called for National Guard troops to step in and help in Washington D.C. because he'd received phone calls from secure locations, panicky legislators asking for help, the initial answer he got from the Department of Defense was no. We still don't think it's necessary. Was that person in the Department of Defense following Trump's orders? In which case, Trump should not only be convicted in the Senate and, remo- and, and removed from ever serving in an elected office again, he also should be handcuffed and arrested for actual participation in the sedition, perhaps even treason against the United States of America. As an example, I am somebody who has some very devout Christian values, and I, I am one of the types of people who's very quick to criticize the pro-life movement for also being so pro-death penalty. But I tread lightly across that ground because I am not exactly anti-death penalty either. I can simultaneously believe that the death penalty is misused in this country, uh, is used far more often than it should be, uh, does not have the care that it ought to have, is often used inappropriately as a leverage tool for prosecution and still think it ought to exist. That if somebody commits treason on such a scale that a law enforcement officer is murdered by a mob that he invited to Washington, D.C., wound up in a seditious frenzy and sent down the street to fight, 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 well, then maybe the death penalty exists specifically to deal with treason like that. If we got rid of every application of the death penalty whatsoever and held it only for treason, this is the day where that needs to be a bargaining chip on a federal prosecutor's plate to argue about what should be the right charges and the right penalties for the behaviors of people like Senator Josh Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz, former President Donald Trump, and others. If if this is demonstrably an intentional act, if it was orchestrated, if what happened was what was designed to have happened, and if that can be proven, folks, this isn't just an insurrection, and it's not just sedition, it's treason. And at least on the menu for the actual sentencing phase of a charge of treason, someone stealing the Speaker of the House's laptop and offering to sell it to Russian agents, treason on that level, the death penalty needs to be on the table. And I think probably that worldview inside that quadrant of what we might call progressive Christian liberals makes me an outlier. I'm okay with that. As a political moderate, I live my life like an outlier. It was probably within the first nine or ten episodes of this particular Inappropriate Conversations show that a podcast episode was released where I called myself out as a creature from another planet. I've lived a life that doesn't really fit in. 
I'm in some ways the walking embodiment of that notion that I tend to not like being part of a club whose membership standards are so low that I might be actually qualified to join. There's just something about me that tends to be a little bit outside looking in. Now, some of that might be spending a few years uh, you know, training and taking college courses and apprenticeship, that, that reporter mentality, that natural observer. That Among my mottos is I want to live to tell the story. That's a writer's perspective, I guess is the way I would put it. And perhaps even a podcaster's perspective is, is sort of a spin on that same kind of idea. But I'm okay not fitting in. What I'm not really okay with at all is lying. And I feel like the media has done a bad job. When you consider how much political commentary there is in our media, how much freedom uh, television broadcasters in particular give themselves to actually just say what they think, we kind of drop the ball here on addressing big lies face-to-face. Because the big lie, the reason some people who probably have not and will not get a pardon, who are probably going to jail for years, not months, for their behavior in what happened in the United States Capitol building on January 6th of this year, that some of those people are in big trouble because they believe the big lie that somehow President Trump won the 2020 election by a landslide and that it wasn't even close and that massive fraud was committed and so forth and so on. So as I turn my attention to the right to scold that particular group, that is really where I want my focus to be. I could expand it a little bit, but I'm going to not do as much expansion as I might normally. Among the things I might be tempted to address, but I probably won't, I covered in a November talkback episode. It was looking back at a pretty early episode of Inappropriate Conversations called A Better Way to Debate. And in the intro to that, I was talking a little bit about the foolishness of acting like mail-in ballots or some sort of fraud. I mean, this was being this road was being paved way before the election. And the only thing I'll say to add to that is to suggest that maybe the President of the United States at the time had this irrational response to COVID-19, saying things he knew wasn't true, like it was just a flu and it wasn't dangerous and it wasn't that communicable. I mean, all these lies he told about that, maybe those were just paving the way for what he thought would be his opposition to alternative forms of voting that would likely be necessary in the midst of a pandemic. Now, I am going to raise my hand and agree with the charges that I'm giving uh, Donald Trump too much credit for too much thinking, that maybe he's not that bright. But I think that's unfair because I would rather grant him the burden of intelligence and hold him responsible for his actions, that maybe he didn't... He didn't initially discount what coronavirus could be, but at some point when it was disproportionately affecting states with very large cities, kind of didn't care anymore because those large cities tend to be largely Democrat in voting bloc, disproportionately more likely to be Democrat. And so he considered these to be impacting blue states. It was affecting New York and California. So uh, maybe his attitude was let him die. There's more people who can't vote. Or uh, then he kind of veered a little bit more and then was his flipping and flopping and his back and forth is that this could be serious we got to be careful was when it seemed to be affecting some people that he thought he might want to rely on but then when the news broke that this was disproportionately affecting poor and minority people he checked out completely the anti-mask movement took off because i think at some point uh, perhaps and this might be unfair but you know donald trump is a public figure He's a public figure before he ran for president. He's certainly a public figure as president. And his behavior as president offers him no protection whatsoever to criticism by a voting American citizen, which is what I am. Maybe he thought to himself, the more people catch this thing and the more people die, especially if they live in blue states, especially if they're poor people, especially if they're minority people, if he thinks they might be Democrats, go ahead and let them die. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. What Wisconsin did with their primary forcing people to vote in person at the height of the pandemic, where you saw three, four, five, six-hour lines of people, some of them with no real protective equipment, wearing trash bags and other things to try to keep themselves relatively germ-free through that experience of voting, where they did a pretty good job uh, coming out in droves and representing themselves in Wisconsin as a cross-section of the electorate anyway. And maybe that just scared the holy heck out of Republicans in general. 
Trump in particular. And from that moment on, you started hearing a lot of jibber-jabber about how dangerous mail-in balloting was. The president's strategy on Election Day was to say, hey, we're not going to, the Republican legislators and governors in these states are not going to allow any of the early voting to be counted until after the same day voting November 3rd is counted. Because the same day voting November 3rd was more likely to be people who had drunk the Trump Kool-Aid and were not afraid of COVID-19, maybe not even wanting to wear masks and showing up to the polls the way they've always done it, because they were willfully in denial that there was anything dangerous about the pandemic. 400,000 dead Americans the day before inauguration tells a very different story about whether they were right to discount the threat of the pandemic. But the president's game plan was to only allow votes to be counted that were most likely to be counted by people who were supporting them, and then start a stop-the-vote campaign the night after the election so that once enough votes were counted that it looked like there'd been plenty of votes out there and those votes were supporting him. He wanted to stop any more counting from happening because those other votes were illegal. They didn't matter. Like in his mind, the vote had to be actually physically, fully and completely counted on the day of November 3rd or didn't matter. There have been times in American history where we've been able to call elections within just a few hours of the polls closing in California, not even waiting for Alaska and Hawaii because it was obvious what was going to happen. It didn't matter what trailed in late. But this was obviously not one of those years, and the same thing was true in 2016. For the record, in 2016, there were three states, those three states, I believe, holding on to something like 46 electoral college electors, where the margin of victory for Trump in those three battleground states, if I'm remembering right, we're talking about Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, totaled up to something like 20,000 people. The somewhere between 20 and 30,000 votes in total across the three states added together was the collective difference in what we might call the, the battleground states, for want of a better word. Well, this year, you know, I'm seeing data that suggests that there were probably a lot more battleground states than that. But if Trump wanted to try to put together the three states he missed, if, for example, Hillary Clinton's team had said, you know, we're going to register 60-plus lawsuits, we're going to appeal to the Supreme Court, we're going to have state attorney generals filing complaints on our behalf, we're going to do everything in our power to overturn the election, because in three states there's a difference of about twenty to 25,000 votes in total. And boy, that's controversial, because that's a really small number in the variance between who voted for her and who voted for Trump, with 46 electors at stake. Well, Trump has spent all of his time here in the last few months talking about Georgia. I want to get to Georgia in a little bit when I talk about the different drummer, but Georgia is not the answer to his problem. He lost by enough electors that he would need to put together something like 37 or more to make a difference at the electoral college level. So the outgoing president is on tape, strong-arming illegally strong-arming, suggesting that the Secretary of State and his office in Georgia violate the law, make up votes that don't exist, just pretend that there was some irregularity, just give me like, you know, 12,000 more votes and call it good. But the 12,000 votes he was looking for would have only offered him 16 new electors. Wouldn't have been enough to get Trump to 270, wouldn't be enough to take Biden away from 270. So what number are we talking about? Because it is true that 11,779 votes as a margin of difference feels a lot less than the 25,000 or more that were collectively the problem for Clinton. But what was collectively the problem for Trump? He would have to overturn three states. So I went out, and I don't know why I'm doing Republican strategist work for them. It's kind of outrageous when you think about it. But I, to answer the big lie, you have to entertain the, the lie to do it. I mean, Aristotle taught us that you know, the key of an educated mind is you can be able to entertain an idea and still reject it. You don't have to fully accept or embrace a notion to accept it enough to weigh its merits. So what would have to happen? What would the scope of the fraud have to be? Despite the fact that Georgia went out and looked again at the president's constant prodding and urging and found two votes that might be suspicious enough that if you were trying to decide whether those ballots should be cast out. There's two of them they might, they might throw out. Two, not 11,779. 
And if you applied some litmus test to Georgia, if you went out and treated Georgia like it was a problem that needed to be solved, so you resolved to address a very specific issue and you assessed all votes from that perspective, you're not going to find just 11,780 votes that voted for Biden that all get tossed out. You're going to find some that meet the same criteria that would have voted for Trump that would have been tossed out for that reason. So he would have needed way more than 12,000 votes. He probably would have needed something along the lines of 20,000 votes that in some category were being um, deemed to be dubious or suspicious and tossed out so that enough of the ones that were being tossed out for Trump were overcome by a compensatory and then and 12,000 greater number of ones that would have been thrown out on behalf of Biden to get him to the margin he was looking for. And that is so unlikely to occur in situations where Georgia had taken the steps of comparing the machine ballot data to the actual hand recount of ballots and came back with, again, a margin of error that is so small that it would be infinitesimal compared to what Trump was needing to do to accomplish his goal of saying, no, there's 16 electoral college votes here that need to leave Biden and go to me. And all he would have gotten as a result of that effort is the, I guess, the pleasure of losing in the electoral college by slightly less than he lost before. Because the 16 wouldn't have been enough. To get him to enough, I think he needed like 37. 36, 37. Somewhere in there. So I went out and looked. And said, well, okay, let's... First off, let me cite my sources. I went out and looked online. And obviously, I started with the uh, with you know the National Archives. So archives.gov slash electoral hyphen college slash 2020. And just made sure I had the right number of electors for each state. And then the place where I found the most valuable information was cookpolitical.com. The Cook Political Report online, their, uh, their site was cookpolitical.com slash 2020 hyphen national hyphen popular hyphen vote hyphen tracker. And that did a really good job of showing state by state how many votes went for Biden, for Trump, for other. And it gave me the ability to very quickly calculate what the margin of difference was between just Biden and Trump. If you take away enough Biden votes, could you say, well, maybe Trump could have won the state then if that happened? I just left the other out for a second and I looked for the races that were the tightest so that I could come back here and in answer to the big lie say, hey, it wasn't 11,780 votes that he needed. He needed more than 42,921 votes to accomplish his goal. 40, call it 43,000 votes, and that is if every single suspect vote was a vote for Biden and a, and a standard and objective litmus test that you might apply to identify those suspect votes, find them and throw them out, is in every single one of these states more likely to be a Trump vote than a Biden vote, and I say that for a couple of reasons. First off, in the state of Pennsylvania, <clears throat> there was more trouble coming um, from, more fraud coming from Trump voters than from Biden voters. The fraud that has been identified, 100% Trump to my knowledge. So you got that problem of if Biden got more votes in Georgia than Trump did, then you're likely to find a pretty close to 50-50 split in dubious votes to reassess based on whatever standard you want to use. Is it signatures? Is it, you know, the position of the stamp on the envelope for a mail-in? You know, whatever you want to use, you're still likely to net some Trump votes that get disqualified based on that standard. The more stringent the standard, the more likely it's going to apply to every single candidate somewhat equally. And in a state that had more overall popular votes tallied for Biden than Trump, you would expect there to be maybe a little bit more on the Biden side because, well, he got more votes. Therefore, there's more, more votes available to find an issue with. But it would be very close to 50-50 in all these states. Because if I randomly picked states here where Biden was, you know, the winner and where Trump is saying, well, you know what, if we call out, call it 15 key battleground states, according to this, the uh, Cook website, and say, well, okay, but of those, maybe nine of them, nine of the 15 went for Biden instead of Trump. Well, we're still talking about like an average of 70,000 votes per state. So to overturn three of those states, you'd need 210,000 or more votes. No. I put my thumb on the scale and tried to make this thing as beneficial to Trump as humanly possible. Part of being a radical moderate. I can see things from both sides. I can put myself in both camps and I can say, you know what? If I were the Republican sitting president of the United States looking for another term and I wanted to do something to say, hey, can we do some strategic recounts in three or more states 
just enough to get me the electors I need. If I challenge these three states and I get my way in those three states, that's enough electors that if all three go my way and if enough votes are thrown out, it tilts to my favor. We're not talking about 11,000, 12,000 votes here. We're talking about 43,000 votes. And we're really probably talking about more than 70,000 votes to net you a net difference of 42,921, which is what you'd need. I found the best case scenarios, in other words. In the state of Arizona, the gap between the two is less than 11,000, favoring Biden. In Georgia, less than 12,000, favoring Biden. In Wisconsin, less than 21,000, favoring Biden. And every other state had a bigger gap than that. I mean, Pennsylvania is attractive to people because it's got so many electors, but it was 81,660 difference between the two. That's a much bigger number. Michigan was 150,000 plus. Minnesota, 233,000 plus. Those are not good states for this effort. I picked the states where the margin was the tightest. And then I picked as many of the states as I needed to that it would make a difference in the electoral college total. If you took all those electors away from Biden and gave them to Trump, I came up with three states. Those states were Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. And even if every single suspect ballot you found were all Biden voters and you tossed them all out, it's 43,000 people. It is way too many to not have the kind of evidence you'd need to be able to walk into a court and say, yes, your honor, I am alleging fraud and here is the evidence to back up my case. But in case after case after case, totaling up to 60 plus, when judges actually did ask the question of Trump's attorneys, are you alleging fraud here? The answer was always no, because every single one of them wanted to continue to be a lawyer. None of them were interested in going to jail because that is perhaps what would happen to you if you lied to a judge, to his or her face on a question like, hey, are you alleging there's fraud here? How can the president of the United States, how can senators like Cruz and Holly, how can more than a hundred Republican congressmen and women make the claim that there was fraud here when the moment of truth happened The president himself, through selected legal representation, was absolutely silent on the issue. Even to the extent of, in one case, the judge pushing the issue and Giuliani actually having to say, no, your honor, we are not alleging fraud at all. Okay, why wasn't that the end of it? Because in a situation like this, you'd go to the courts, maybe in these three states. You'd want to do recounts in the states. You do recounts in Wisconsin, the the count comes up right, end of story. Well, now you don't have enough states. You could actually contest and win cases in Arizona and Georgia, and it would not matter because 27 electoral votes was not enough to change the difference. Tighten up the margin a little bit. I mean, that's good to assuage his pride, but it wouldn't actually make a single difference if you had that kind of a change to just two of the three states. So how do you have the temerity to stand up on the floor of the U.S. Congress, whether you're a representative or a senator, and make a claim that there's massive fraud here. The massive fraud is anybody who made that claim, and the truth here is in the numbers, because there is a certain degree of suspension of disbelief that I'm not capable of, and I frankly don't know any intelligent person who is capable of, of presuming that fraud on the scale that it would have to occur to be meaningfully impactful actually occurred. So for that reason... We have a lot of people who, in my opinion, sit in elected offices in places like state attorneys general, in some cases maybe governors, uh, speakers of the House and and presidents of senates and state houses, not to mention at least two, maybe a half dozen U.S. senators and more than 100 um, representatives in the House in Congress, perhaps need to be arrested. They need to be called, at the very least, they need to be called on the floor before an ethics committee in the body in which they serve, to answer a question. You have enough evidence to suggest that there is fraud that would lead to a change in the electoral outcome such that you would refuse to certify the electors, such that you would raise such a stink about it in the weeks leading up to the Congress reconvening to do their congressional duty and accepting the votes of the electors, that you whipped a mob in who would actually come and attack the U.S. Capitol building, well, then you better have the proof. You got fraud you're going to put those kind of stakes against? You better have the proof. You better be willing to stand up. You better be willing to testify. You better be able to make your case. And if at that moment of truth you say, well, you know what? We don't really have the evidence. I'm sorry. You should be expelled from the United States Senate 
and there should at least be strong consideration into whether you should be arrested and charged with crimes, not limited to, but certainly including, sedition. A wise man once defined crazy as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Voted for a Democrat or Republican lately? Seen any difference? Feeling crazy yet? There is a cure for political insanity. You just need an injection of common sense. Watch out, though. It's a very big needle. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. So, I'm likely to cut this short. Not sure what else to do, actually. We've gone through, as a national experience, this wait between... November the 3rd, call it the first week of November and the next to the last week of January in a bizarre holding pattern because one of the things you expect to have happen in a presidential election cycle is when it's impossible for one person to win the election. When the counts are in, when the margin is double the difference of what it was when you won four years ago, well, then you ought to concede. And if you wait for a recount, those recounts happen and the vote doesn't change, well, then you concede. If you, you know, go to court and try to challenge the validity of the results and you get thrown out of court not once, not even dozens of times, but scores of times, well, then you concede. And here we are on Inauguration Day 2021, the results of the presidential election in November 2020. There has not been a concession, and by all accounts, there never will be. Instead, what we've got is idiotic nonsense, like the people from the state of Wisconsin, of Wyoming and and Texas threatening to secede from the Union. Because make no mistake, what happened January 6th was, in, a, in essence, an act of borderline civil war. And I don't know exactly how Wyoming thinks it's going to import products to its sovereign little nation there, bound on all sides by the United States of America, with hostility toward the U.S. government such that there might well be, you know, an air travel embargo over the state. I mean, It's idiotic in the extreme. Now, I don't want to discount the importance of Georgia, because there is a reason here why Georgia absolutely matters, even though the, uh, you know, Trump's pursuit of 12,000 phantom votes, well, isn't the answer. The answer is our different drummer this week, Stacey Abrams. Trying to find the calm in the storm of this baseline level of stress that I've described, and essentially it's an election year level of stress, but this year that taken to an extreme probably doesn't help if one of the places that you seek a break from the news is documentary filmmaking about uh, election, voter suppression, uh, racism, and other issues. And I probably spent quite a bit of time this year from the Breonna Taylor killing till the you know actual end of the calendar year, investing in more and more of these documentaries, just almost in the interest of being informed. This is really only the second brand new Inappropriate Conversations recording since the 4th of July. And so, you know, I've been doing more prep work than recording, I guess it's fair to say. But one of the movies that I would recommend is All In. It's available, I believe I saw it on Amazon Prime, and it's a pretty good uh, documentary covering a variety of topics, but covering it from a distinctly Stacey Abrams perspective. As I want to do, Wikipedia says this about our different drummer. Stacey Yvonne Abrams was born in December 1973, is an American politician, lawyer, voting rights activist, and author who served in the Georgia House of Representatives from 2007 to 2017, serving as minority leader for much of that time. A member of the Democratic Party, she founded the Fair Fight Action, an organization to address voter suppression in 2018. Now, this came shortly after she um, lost the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election, and that election was fraught with a great deal of conflicts of interest and irregularities. So let's just focus in on the state of Georgia for just a moment and talk about the allegations of fraud 
and what it means to talk about such a slim vote count making the decisive difference in this particular year's presidential election, and a similar slight vote variance in the other direction deciding the governor's race in 2018. Because when Stacey Abrams lost that governor's race, one of the things she did, in addition to perhaps not formally conceding either, was form organizations and a grassroots grassroots effort to make sure that no one was going to be denied the right to vote if they legally had that right to vote again, and to enliven and encourage and embolden people in Georgia who had not necessarily been habitual voters, in part because of centuries-long situations where a family tradition, for want of a better word, handed down through the generations about how dangerous it was to vote. For minority people living 100 years ago in the state of Georgia, deciding to show up at a polling place and cast a vote for you know, a key office like a governor or a president was, in essence, a suicide note. It was, in many cases, uh, the last formal act of that individual. And this has been covered in some of the documentaries that I've been watching this year because the number one problem, it's uh, specific in the example I'm going to use to the state of Georgia, but it actually kind of a coast-to-coast issue, especially in places where, sorry to say, Republicans are in charge of the legislature and the governor's office and the secretary of state's positions, um, voter suppression. You know, if you're the acting, if you are the secretary of state acting in your role as secretary of state in 2017 and 2018, and you're running for governor, then I would think you would want to try your darndest to be a citizen above suspicion. And this, this is not a credit I can offer to Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp. When you purge hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls, including people who have been voting habitually for years, uh, and your purge is based on the fact that they're inactive voters and therefore they don't belong on the rolls anymore, so that when those people show up, they're either turned away from the polls or they have to fill out a provisional ballot, and then being a Republican governor, you're in the habit of contesting the use of provisional ballots. It's just one thing after another. I previously talked in inappropriate conversations about Alabama, uh, deciding that no one could vote without a driver's license, and then shutting down all of sort of the uh, transportation boards and other places that you might be able to get a driver's license within walking distance of communities of color. So if you were relatively poor, if you didn't have transportation, if you relied on public transportation, your ability to just go, uh, hop on a bus and go to the nearest board of transportation and get your driver's license was severely compromised. In Wisconsin, you were looking at situations where the number of polling places in urban areas like Milwaukee was exponentially decreased. I don't have the numbers in front of you, but it's something like 30 or 40 different places that you could vote, down to five or six. And all this meaning that if you did not have your own independent means of transportation, that a a, board, a barrier had been put in front of you, legally casting your right to vote as a citizen, that it was an effort by the GOP, and I think it's a, a national effort, a nationwide effort by the Republican Party to try to, quote-unquote, restore the act of voting into this country to something that only can be legally done by people who are property holders. And it's fair to say, back when that terminology was being used in our nation's history, property included people. Property included African people. So Stacey Abrams stood up to that and said, you know what, I'm 100% sure she said in her mind that she lost this gubernatorial race to malfeasance, to conflicts of interest, to self-dealing by the Secretary of State as he ran for the governorship. And um, she didn't choose to launch lawsuits where she didn't have the evidence necessarily to back it up. She didn't prolong what was going on in Georgia past the point of the inauguration of a new governor. She simply drew a line in the sand and said, not again. And that meant going door to door, and that meant fundraising, and that meant making legal arguments and challenging voter suppression efforts by the current Republican Secretary of State in Georgia. This is one of the reasons why I'm so hesitant to give people in, you know, these leaders in Georgia too much credit. It says not something about the character of Brian Kemp, for example, the the governor of Georgia, or his secretary of state, both Republicans, that they stood up to Trump, what it tells you is that Trump's arguments were that foolish, that corrupt, that misguided, that even these folks who have fought and lost in court to Stacey Abrams as she fought to defend the rights of individual citizens 
to maintain their place on the voting rolls and their right to vote. These people have been on the losing side of conflicts. And if they measured what the president was asking them to do and said, oh, hell no, I'm not going to court with that argument. It just gives you an indication not of their moral character, but of how vacuous the arguments being made by Trump and his people actually were. Backing this up that we have a problem in our country is the last little anecdote I'll share about Abrams, because really I want to call her out in the context of this show because of what she's contributed to the rights of people to vote this year. The rights of people to vote overcoming uh, the closing of polling places, shenanigans with voter rolls, COVID-19 itself as a pandemic and therefore a health risk, all sorts of things. But she tells a story both in her in her personal life and in her books and, and in this uh, documentary about working as hard as she could upon her family relocating to Georgia and earning the, the role of valedictorian of her high school. And with that uh, position as the top-graded student in her class, being invited, as all students in the state were, all the valedictorians in the state were, to the governor's mansion for uh, you know sort of a luncheon and so forth, honoring those students for their hard work. And because she and her family arrived in a bus rather than driving up in a car, the security guard wouldn't even check the list to see if she actually was somebody who'd been invited to the governor's mansion. Even the act of suggesting that he confirmed that they were telling the truth and that they belonged and that her her uh, success as a student merited them being there required maybe not just a little bit of arguing, but perhaps even some threats to get somebody to do their job because he made a blanket assumption that if you were poor and if you were black, you did not belong. I'm going to make an argument that a lot of the allegations of fraud that have gone on in the 2020 election are allegations based on the fact that despite a concerted effort across multiple state lines by usually Republican officials to stop poor and black people from voting, they've concluded that it must be fraud because it somehow didn't work. And one of the reasons that it didn't work, despite the efforts, people like our different drummer, Stacey Abrams. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. As I mentioned earlier, there is a Facebook page for inappropriate conversations. I also interact on Twitter somewhat very actively here in the month of January. As a matter of fact, I'm at IC underscore Greg. Some hints and audio clips of past shows are available on SoundCloud. I'm also IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.